Hello, this is Black Country Blokes Tune the Fat. Listen, listen, listen. I've been hearing a lot lately about men don't talk. But in my experience, men do talk, just people aren't listening. So it's going to be me and a group of blokes discussing our struggles and victories through life. Warning, there may be some bad language, so apologies to all the moms, especially my own. Let's get going. Listen, listen, listen. I've been, yeah, just a black winter bloke, chewing the fat about everything that is mental health, disability, and life in general. With me, Kev Dillon, and my partner in crime, Lee Cameron. Cameron, that's <laughs> it. enough of her names. And we're joined with Lloyd Barron. Got it, smashed it. I got your name wrong. Uh, Dr. Lloyd Barron. And Lloyd, what, what is your actual job role? So, um, as I was saying to you before, I am a, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, I'm afraid. So I am a, a GP. I work in Kingswinford at Kingswinford Medical Practice. Um, I also work as a doctor in the drug services at Atlantic House. Uh, and I'm also the clinical lead for health inequalities at Dudley Integrated Healthcare NHS Trust. So we're going to be talking about all this and more. But as we start the show, as always, we're going to talk about gratitude list. Now, my gratitude list, I am grateful for, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful for having a Mother's Day. Um, my mum was on holiday. She's come back now, so I'm going to make a fuss of her tomorrow when I see her. But I was grateful for having a Sunday dinner with my wife, my mother-in-law, and my daughter. It was having a day at home. It was good, you know, just being a family. And that... I'm always grateful for having people in my life that I love and that love me. So I'm I'm grateful for that. What are you grateful for, bro? I'm going with one. Seeing as we've got a doctor on the show, health today. Mm. So my little one was off most of last week, ill, um, but she's better this week, um, and she's back at school. And I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for for her health, our health, her family's health, your health, everyone's health. You don't realise until someone's sick in your family. How, how it affects you, uh, you know, uh, and I don't mean jobs and things like that. I mean, mentally and physically watching someone be ill and have seizures is not nice. So, yeah, I'm grateful that she's now well. And Doc, what are you grateful for? Well, I think, yeah, obviously you stole my mind health. Think, you know, <laughs> I've got to say that as a doctor, haven't I? But I think it is the basis for everything, isn't it? You know, we'll all, we all hear the old saying, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. And actually, that, that can be very true sometimes for some people. Um, so certainly that. And obviously, I'm very grateful for my loving family and my partner. Um, I'm very, very blessed. I've got a lot of wonderful people around me that picked me up and dusted me down in my difficult times, which I've had in the past as well. Uh, so, yeah, I've got plenty to be grateful for. If you are lucky to have someone in your life, be it your partner, your children, your friends, best mate, best mate. It, it's <laughs> can't remember my name, but yeah. <laughs> I want to hold that against you. But when you've got people in your life and you're struggling with bad health, bad mental health, bad circumstances, bad luck, bad trauma, and you've got people to lean on, you are a lot braver. You're a stronger, I believe. I always say the best friend of any mental health or ill health is loneliness. Because when you were alone, it's so frightened. And we had uh, Luke on here from Wild and Well, and he said when outdoors, it was the first time he was out on his own in the woods, and he hear an owl. And you think, oh, God, it's not an owl. It's a banter, it's a killer, it's a murderer. <laughs> and it's the same when you're waiting for your results from the doctors or when you're pooling, you haven't got anyone just to bounce that ball off. That, you catastrophize, don't you? Mm -hmm. And then we're going down that rabbit hole and we end up in a very dark place, don't we? And I bet you see that all the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, I mean, I'm not wanting to use all these old proverbs or, or whatever we call them, but, you know, a problem shared, a problem halved, all of these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. And often I'll say to my patients, you know, particularly when they're discussing issues that are difficult, I'll be like, have you got somebody that you talk to, somebody you trust? Mm -hmm. um, and not everybody does have that. Not everybody's blessed. But if they do, I'm always like, you know, speak with them, open up to them. Um, it can be really useful to do that because like you say, you carry something around in your head and it builds and builds and builds and something, you know, becomes a mountain, doesn't it, all of a sudden. And you become sometimes scared to tell somebody because you just feel so frightened by it. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, once you said it and you say it out loud, it doesn't always sound quite so bad, does it? And I think that was, we were saying off camera and I thought it was such a great point, you, your bedside manner with a doctor, because sometimes you, it takes extreme amount of courage to go there sometimes 
and then to open up about it and then how we're met with love and knowledge can make such a difference can't it absolutely i mean you know as doctors we forget day day to day you know we, we see a stream of people and and it can become normal to us you know we forget that like you say for somebody who's waited sometimes quite a few weeks for the appointment at the moment um you know it could have built up they're very nervous they might be shy and that little bit of time to them is vital even if the problem may well be medically minor to me mm. um they could have plucked up a lot of courage to discuss it and i think as we were saying before you know medicine really is as much of an art as it is a science i think the bedside manner is really important for most patients um and some patients want a different bedside manner to others but when you find that's somebody you can work with who you feel listens and gives you that space then i think it can make a real difference can i just add sorry okay before we go and we've got a, quite a few listeners dave if anyone wants to ask any questions whether it be facebook LinkedIn, or youtube ask away the harder the better uh, lloyd's told me so ask away <laughs> and we'll read them out so we can answer them for you that's fine I've, we've got google on standby so <laughs> we, we can google everything yeah, <laughs> what we're saying about like how it used to be my doctor used to be dr parnell and you'd have the, the family doctor mm -hmm. and over the last i don't even know when that changed really but we've moved away from it mm -hmm. and sometimes like you said like dr parnell was my doctor he was my mom's doctor my dad's doctor my nana granddad's doctor so he knew the whole family where sometimes like hopefully from month to month or no matter when you go to the doctors and you don't recognize that guy as much do you find it harder to do you miss those days for one and do you find it hard do you find do you think that people find it harder to build rapport yeah i think i think it's definitely is an issue i think it's something that's probably changed quite gradually it probably didn't happen overnight did it mm. um and i think part of it is because of staffing in the nhs there are less gps there are less full-time gps as well um there's been probably more of a, a a shift from you know nhs england that the access is king and just getting in front of a gp is the most important thing mm. and we've sacrificed continuity as we've done that and you know for me becoming a gp part of my motivation for that was to get to know my patients was to get to know the people who come to see me mm. to know their family their children their sisters whoever it is mm. um and to develop that relationship to help me understand them and and you know our health is deeply connected to our life isn't it mm. so to have that connection i think makes you a better gp in the context of that patient you can understand things you can normally deal with things a lot quicker because you know their medical history you know what's going on and, and you can normally tell when something's wrong, you know, you can say, what's going on? You know, what's happening today? And I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively new GP. I haven't been doing it for years and years. So I've never really known the full continuity, but I've still seen a deterioration mm. in the time I've been working. Or even when you were a patient, because mm -hmm. I bet you had your, your family doctor, you had the... Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, I, rem I remember as a kid going into, um, I mean, our doctor surgery was in Briley Hill. Um, and I remember there'd be, there'd be a queue with a receptionist for each doctor with the name on. That's how, how, <laughs> how strict it was. You know, you went in Dr. French's queue, Dr. Samaria's queue. Um, <laughs> that was my doctor, funny enough. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, you know, that <laughs> many and, years and, ago. And that's the way it was, you know. Um, and whilst access is important, I do think, you know, I bang on about continuity at work. And I think some people probably roll their eyes. But, oh, gosh, here we go again. But I think for a lot of patients, it's nice. They feel more comfortable. It's easier. They have not got to explain themselves again. And if it's something that's difficult to talk about, once mm -hmm. you've said it once and they know me, they're, you know, they know me and they haven't got to tell me all about that. I think that, like, with, like, with therapy as well, like, mm -hmm. with sometimes it's um, when you disclose something, uh, the trauma is when I lost my mom or I was abused or I'm an addict or I'm re-offended or... <laughs> And sometimes it's very difficult to keep saying that story and over. And yeah. but if you've got someone who goes, I know, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't. You haven't got to tell me every time because I've, I've seen you for the last mm -hmm. two to twenty years, yeah. mm -hmm. and you've got that kind of relationship, haven't you? So I've got to relive the trauma. Or you think, bloody hell, you don't. You don't even know me. And it makes such a difference, doesn't it? I mean. You know, I don't know, think about when you ring up O2 or your electricity company or whatever and you get through to somebody on the phone and you, you trot out your little story. Yeah. Oh, that's such and such department I'm going to transfer mm -hmm. you. You trot it out again. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get really frustrated in those situations. You know, I'm swearing. I'm not swearing at the person, but I'm like, ah, you know, yeah. why have I had to explain this multiple times? And yet that's just me explaining that I've been overpaying for six months on a bill. Mm. You know, it's not me talking about a trauma from the past or something that's mm. really upset me. 
And yeah, you know, patients are faced with having to explain it to three, four, five different doctors. Mm. Um, and that, that must be really difficult. And actually, it must be quite disenchanting. And it? Oh, here we go again. I've got to tell them another person about this. I've still got mm. to start again. Um, so yeah, annoying. And it is, to, and, and because it matters more to the person it does to the doctor, to the physician, because once again, whether it's athlete's foot, mm -hmm. it's cancer, it's, I remember when my wife had our daughter, the nurses, they deal with that every single day. My wife had to have an emergency um, cesarean because uh, Jasmine was coming out breach, coming out bum first. Mm -hmm. And to them, it's every day we have this. Yeah. To me, it was my my wife and my daughter, and that's the two most important things in my life. And I could be coming out with nothing, but because they're so used to it, but they forget to that person, their life will never be the same. And that's, I imagine, when you're on the roller coaster of the job, it's hard because you can't be that. I'm not saying this wrongly, but passionate about every single person. Yeah. But it's sometimes you think, well, that person is going for their form of hell or paranoia or whatever it is at that time you, you are right and i think you know most doctors will admit you do sometimes have to stop and remind yourself that and it can be hard you know you, you you've done a 10 11 hour shift it's maybe your fifth mm -hmm. or sixth one of those shifts in a row you know particularly if you work in hospital you're you're a junior doctor or you're on the on-call rotor mm -hmm. and yeah it is a conveyor but like you say you know Speaking of your experience, you've already been to six C-sections that morning. There's already been this, that, that and the other. Mm. So it is easy to just get swept away and, and, and forget that actually for each person, for them, this is something they're probably going to remember for the rest of their life. Whereas you're not going to remember each individual one. But we also forget, and this is what I've really enjoyed having you on and other doctors, it's giving a human face to the doctor, to that nurse, because... We're, we're in the blink, we're in a fight, we're, we're panicking, my wife, my daughter might die, but you're forgetting that doctor has been on a 10-hour shift and he might or she might have lost someone in the last C-section. Their wife might be poorly at home, their kids might yeah, be blamed. Yeah. And we forget that person who we're panicking at mm -hmm. is also a human being. Yeah, I mean, that, that that is important and I think it is it's good to remember that. I mean, I suppose when you're the one in that frightening situation, you know, the calmness of your doctor or your nurse or whoever is important and you know it is important when you're a doctor or, or a nurse or any medical profession to try and leave that stuff behind as much as you can mm. you're right we are human you can't completely shut it out but it is important in terms of treating each patient as an individual to try and box that up to deal with at a later date in order mm. that you can give somebody the best of you yeah. in that situation um because if you come at it flustered it's going to make them feel more frightened and more scared but yeah we do we do sometimes have to peel off and have a cry things affect us the same um and sometimes it can surprise you you can think you've become quite hard to something and then it happens and you're like you know we've had a, a question coming on spring it up so terence burnett do you think nurses doctors medical medical professionals have lost the person centered centered approach oh my god my reading's terrible today terrible. do you want me to do that again thank you at least one of us thinks so um it's an interesting question really i mean i can see how you know relating to what we've been just been discussing how actually some people may come away feeling that that has been lost in a pressured system where you know doctors and nurses don't have time or, or the right amount of time to deal with the problem and um, they've done a long shift notwithstanding all those other problems they're probably not going to have their bedtime and it's probably not going to be as good you're right and it's it's funny because at medical school now the person-centered approach is really quite key on the curriculum you know there's a lot of talk about shared decision making between the clinician and the patient and involving patients in, in in your discussions which i agree with i think it's great but actually in reality in a pressured healthcare system that's very much in demand are we losing some of that because of those pressures that are there and i think that that potentially could could be yeah. a cause it, i've been in and out of hospital with my daughter now for the last eight years various days pretty much every hospital in the midlands at one point and I have to say that I've never, ever felt that way. I've never felt like we've always had great doctors, nurses who've always come up, explained it. And I felt like my daughter has been the centre of attention. 
Um, we don't go to GPs very often, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, care is higher than GPs, but that sounds rude to you. I don't mean you yeah, like yeah, that, but it's kind of like we don't go there. Yeah, that's it. So we go there. Um, but it always, I can't remember a single time where we haven't felt like that she hasn't been the, the centre of attention. And that doesn't mean that it's um, every now and again you're waiting a bit longer to see a doctor to come in and things yeah. like that. That's not, the, you know, you do. You know, let's be honest, it's it's stretched. But every time they're in with us, you feel like that you're their patient and they're looking after you, definitely. Yeah, and I think... Especially nurses. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's the same with many things, isn't it? One bad experience you can remember against nine good ones, mm. aren't you? Um, you know, if, if a patient's had 10 interactions with a doctor and one is genuinely terrible, dismissive doctor, not interested, disinterested, you know, a bit, bit blunt, a bit dismissive of the problem you're probably going to remember that over the other nine that were decent experiences yeah. and that that's going to sit with you then you think that, that's not right and the same can be true of us you know I, I could see 30 patients in a day and 29 of them could be wonderful and one of them could be nasty to me or rude and that will be the one I'll take home mm. and I think sometimes it's like you you're going to any on the Monday oh I knocked my hand up on Friday night mm -hmm. having a fight and I've had to wait 12 hours but when you are in an emergency you have had a heart attack you have had a stroke it's fast, amazing how fast you are seeing. Mm. And it's remembering that. You, you're thinking, at the moment, my hand's killing me. But am I going to die from it? Whereas yeah. that poor soul, they need the help now. Mm. And we need to remember that, don't we? Yeah, I think that is really key, isn't it? And and whilst, yeah, you're in agony and your hand's awful, the rest of it, you know, you're not immediately at risk of, of dying. If it was that bad, you'd have gone on Friday night. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, one could argue that, I suppose. And, you know... We all put things off, don't we? Well, maybe this will get a bit better, or, or that and the other. So we can all fall foul of that, I suppose. But yeah, I think the NHS, despite the difficulties we've had in recent times, is still very good in the main. Um, you know, because so, of the caring people there. Yeah, and I think the NHS has run on goodwill for a very long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think since its existence, an element of goodwill has been put in. Nurses and doctors and admin staff, everybody who works in it works over. Everywhere I've worked, when I was a junior and I was rotating through or as a GP, you know, our receptionists, if I get stuck behind, so do they. Mm. And they don't sit there. And they tend to be nails. the ones who get the... Yeah, yeah you know, they, they, they will carry on doing work, helping patients, finding things, sorting prescriptions out. Mm. Um, and that happens right across the NHS. There's a huge amount of work done for free. Um, because if we were to work to our, our time and hours, we just wouldn't get the level that we get from the NHS. Mm -hmm. So I think it is important to remember that we do need to be careful of that goodwill, because if we lose it, we do lose our NHS, I think. Well, and I, I pray every, that we don't lose it, because mm -hmm. once it's gone, and well, we won't talk about politics, but once it has gone, it won't be coming back, will it? It's a long road back, mm -hmm. isn't it, for something like that, you're right. And yet, politics aside and all the rest of it, even despite the problems we've had in the NHS recently, it is still a very efficient and good value for money system that's fair, you know, and I really believe very deeply in the NHS and would fight for its existence. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is a better system that could replace it. And sometimes people will say to me, oh, well, I've got private healthcare, I've got that. Private healthcare in this country is cheap because the NHS exists. Mm. You know, the premiums that we pay for private healthcare in this country are very low because those providers know there's an NHS to pick up pieces in certain circumstances. If that's gone, your premiums for private healthcare are going to be treble, sometimes quadruple the price that you're paying now. It's important to remember actually how precious the system we've got is. So we'll go on to a bit about Atlantic would that, House. You would you, yeah, first of all, for those people who don't understand what Atlantic House is, would you like to explain what it is? Yeah, of course. So um, Atlantic House is um, it's actually a building in, in Lye. Um, it is part of the drug services and it's provided by a charity called Change, Grow, Live. Um, they're a nationwide company. They've got multiple um, sites dealing with alcohol and, and drug problems. They've also got an inpatient detox unit park house in Birmingham where people can be admitted for detoxification. So that's what Atlantic House is. It's It's been there for, I might, might be tired off of wrong, but I think it's been there since the mid noughties at least um, in different forms. Speak through Google and check. That's, that, <laughs> that's, me. That's, that's not that long. You see, the amount of people, because I know a lot of people who use Atlantic House and it's the amount of people they do work with and it, it's not, uh, I mean, it's from alcohol all the way through, isn't it? 
yeah so essentially any you know any issue with um you know a drug and alcohol something that has become a problem for a person um we, we will deal with it at atlantic house so yeah i mean you say drugs people automatically think of heroin don't they often or, or cocaine's another one but people can obviously have issues with cannabis people can have issues with prescription medications that have been legitimately prescribed by their gp mm. um alcohol obviously is a big one again perfectly legal to buy if you're over 18 um you know so there is a whole spectrum of different things and a, and a real spectrum of different people who might need to use the services and people think of addicts as uh, that guy on the park bench or stealing addiction's got many different forms hasn't it absolutely addiction is really complicated actually um it's there are so many facets to it you know addiction can be a physical problem insofar as you know somebody becomes tolerant to a drug they need more of it they become dependent because if they don't have it they'll have a withdrawal you know think alcohol and seizures or um you know heroin withdrawal and then you know there's the psychological aspects people people can become psychologically addicted to a drug so if they stop it they don't have a classic physical withdrawal but they can have a psychological distress reaction Cannabis can be a quite common one there and um, that people experience it, but you can become psychologically addicted to, well, I suppose to pretty much anything really, mm. or any substance. And then I suppose there's the habit side of addiction too. Um, you know, smoking is a good example. People say, oh, I miss that fag at the end of my dinner or mm. I miss that fag in the morning. Or just having something in my hand. Yeah, you know, that, that habit aspect to it. And then there's the social side and alcohol is a good example of this, isn't, isn't it? You know, mm. people might drink with certain groups of friends people might use certain drugs with certain groups of friends and and if they've stopped because they've developed a problem and they're in that circumstance there can be a craving because that's what they do there that's how it would be so you know i mean that that has simplified things but i think that demonstrates the complexities of of addiction uh, you know in, in and of itself and how many facets there are to it and i think when you said then addiction and habit somebody have got those habits as you say mm -hmm. Every it's Friday night. Oh, should, I, I've got to drink because it's Friday. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I mean. Or it's half past five. You know, go and pour a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny though how fast habits can become addictions, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there's a very fine line, isn't there? And I think I suppose sometimes we can kid ourselves that an addiction's a habit. Mm. Um, you know, it's just because I've always done it, I've always had a glass of wine at half five, and people might notice that suddenly that becomes five or half four or mm. they're spending the whole day thinking god i really want to get to that glass of wine mm. and i think it is important to sort of roll back a little bit from from addiction and talk about human beings and it is natural to want to explore different things you mm. know sometimes it's natural to want to explore things that alter our perception of the world mm. you know whether that be alcohol nicotine other drugs um you know there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself and for some people they can do that in a fairly healthy way some people can go and get drunk once or twice a year have a really nice time no problem some people can go and get drunk once or twice a month and it doesn't cause them any issues you know um so i think it is important to remember that there is sort of recreational drug use and i'm not condoning you know the purchase of illegal substances and all those other things but at the same time you can't just put this label because somebody wants yeah. a line of and you can't ignore that it's not happening either. yeah exactly it's it, you know it's a thing it happens um you know teenagers particularly are going to explore things so they're interested i think mm -hmm. at the moment vaping's the big thing isn't it um you know pretty pink colors and all the rest of it in, in the supermarkets and it's become a trendy thing to do so i think it's important to make that distinction between what i don't want to term the healthy use but sensible use of something versus something that's actually starting to get control of a person and they're becoming in need of it i was just thinking the other day and it really struck home with me it said um drugs weren't the problem or alcohol wasn't the problem my addiction wasn't the problem they were filling the void with what was the problem mm -hmm. and it wasn't until i found out what the problem was then i could step away from the addiction yeah and i thought how true that was why we get into drugs or alcohol or womanizing or gambling or whatever it is yeah. and you think that that void was the problem mm -hmm. you know what i mean and what i was filling it with was it was just yeah. what it was yeah completely and i think 
you know, drugs or alcohol, a lot of them do what they exactly what they say on the tin. Mm. You know, alcohol, by and large, for most people, will make them feel more relaxed, more mm. disinhibited. Um, and you know, it sounds quite benign, doesn't it? I'm a bit of, say I'm a bit of a socially anxious person. I find it difficult talking to people. You know, I'm 18, so I've got all those other you know, angsty insecurities that might come because I'm not quite, my identity is not quite formed. And I discover that if I go in the pub and I have a couple of pints before I meet my mates, I'm relaxed. I can have a nice time. It's okay. I can talk to that girl boy. I can, yeah. 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 And it reinforces that behavior because you do it and you're like, I had a great night. I felt relaxed. Everything was fine. I didn't have normal nerves. So you do it again the next time. And very easily that can start to escalate because suddenly it's like, I feel nervous going to work. Maybe I should have a drink. Mm. I feel nervous doing this. Maybe I should have a drink. Um, so these things can, for some people, escalate. And and you're right, Kev, you know, for some people, it can be filling the gap, something that's happened in their past, mm. something trauma, something to do with the way they cope with the world. Um, you know, you, you sometimes hear psychiatrists and other medical professions use the term self-medicating. Yes. Um, and, and that's what it can be. It helps people. It's a crutch. Sorry, Kev. I've got a question for oh, you. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, before I lose my hand, because like, with that, it's like with like, um, and it's funny, as you said, like uh, you start drinking because I'm anxious and then I'm socially anxious, so I'll have a drink, have a drink. And it's amazing everything you use as a crutch to get over the problem creates other problems, yeah. like with marijuana. I want it because it relaxes me and I have the giggles. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, I've become paranoid using the same with cocaine. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it gets me out there. I'm more confident. Oh, then I'm curtain twitching. Yeah. And it, it's the thing that you use to get over the problem creates more problems. Yeah. And sometimes before you can come away from it, you will use that. You use you use that as the excuse to keep doing it. It's like a, an abusive relationship. Yeah, completely. You know, you, you've in your own head, you've got a legitimate reason for doing it, haven't you? Because, you know, you've got a problem, you've got something that makes you feel uncomfortable and you found something that gets rid of that, mm. you know. And if you're, you know, if you've got a headache, you take a pill to get rid of it, do you? or most people do. Mm. You don't sit there with a crippling headache thinking, I'm going to I'm going to let it go. Mm. And, you know, social anxiety can be crippling for some people. And, oh. and there's something that's relatively cheap and accessible that will fix it. Mm. It's a temporary fix, but it fixes it. Um, and people who've experienced really hard trauma may turn to other drugs to block that out. You know, heroin's very good at doing that. It makes people feel very nice and euphoric and wrapped up in 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 that feeling at the moment. You know, um, but it doesn't deal with the reason why they needed it in the first place. And there doesn't always have to be trauma. No, some people discover something and they just like the feeling. Like it. Yeah. And I've never met anyone. Who wanted to be an addict i've met yeah. many an addict but i've never met one saying when i grow up i want to rob my mom's wedding ring or i want to yeah. burgle a house or i want to lose my wife mm -hmm. but every addict i've ever known thought it won't get me mm -hmm. i i can have a dabble it won't get me mm -hmm. i've got an handle on it mm -hmm. and next thing you know be five years 10 years 20 years 30 and next thing you know you can't keep the monkey off your back and some people can dabble yeah. In things, being in drugs, in booze, in gambling, whatever it is. Because uh, often we've talked, we've talked many, many times about gambling being as a dangerous addiction as substance mm -hmm. or alcohol. Some people, as you say, if they dabble once a month, once a year, yeah. whatever. But it's when you find that habit is getting more and more and more regular. Mm -hmm. That's when you're thinking, well, is this habit now an addiction? just thinking about it more regular as well aren't oh, you yeah. it's not just that you're the habit you're doing it more it's it's the first thing on your mind it's mm -hmm. the last thing when you get asleep is mm -hmm. you know your your life kind of starts revolving around getting that addiction and i think it's really important to remember that isn't it because i suppose i can't talk about this with without talking about society and how people get judged mm -hmm. and the medical profession are guilty of this i've seen it happen myself you know, um, and a good example for this would be you work in an A&E as a doctor and someone comes in because they've taken a drug overdose. Mm. Someone will have something to say about that. Oh, God, it's another one. Mm. Oh, look at this. And there's even though they'll still be treated mm. and they'll probably be treated well, 
They may be treated with judgment, which they may pick up on. In fact, things might even be said to that person. It probably feels bad enough already that they're there and guilty enough because of all the other problems they've got. And then there's a doctor, you know, raising an eyebrow. Oh, you're here again. Are oh, you, you this, that and the other. And there's this idea that it's almost their fault. Yet in the next cubicle, there's a young girl who fell off her horse and broke her leg. Yes. Yes. Now, she equally engaged in a risk-taking behaviour, yes. as did the person who took the drug. Yes. No one says, we well, shouldn't have got on that horse, should you? Hey, ridiculous, riding an horse, falling off, breaking your leg. You know, as society, we consider that to be normal and acceptable, and the other not to be. And I'm not saying that it is acceptable to go around, you know, taking drugs and being addicted to drugs and all the other things, but... You shouldn't be judged for it. Yeah. The judgment mm. is is there, and I think... That's a really big issue because it compounds people's problems. Not everybody, as we said, there's no stereotypical drug user or somebody who can become addicted to a drug. But for a lot of people who are, it is, it's a process. You know, you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to try heroin, try it, and then, be, you know, instantly become addicted to it. It doesn't mm. work that way. People have often had trauma difficult experiences that can be difficult childhood it can be a normal life and something catastrophic happens to them um you know it could just be severe mental health that they just can't handle the world your mates are doing it yeah or, or that gets yeah. a blast on that mm -hmm. and it builds yeah and it builds over time and all of a sudden somebody's life's out of control mm -hmm. and most people yes the addiction may become the main focus but in between times, people will have terrible guilt. Mm. And then on top of that, not only have you got to try and deal with the original trauma, you've got to deal with the trauma of being addicted and the fact that you might have lost loved ones, family, friends, committed crime, you know, and it all becomes compounded into this real big issue. And the only people who might be able to help, you, you know, the people in hospital and things are casting judgment. So you don't want to go. You just, you're not, you know, you're scared to tell anybody then. I think that's important to remember what you said there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, addiction can hit any creed, sexuality, yeah. you know, anyone, it can hit anyone, can't it? Anyone. There's no, yeah. there's no roundies. So I'll go to this question, Gabe, before, because if not, we'll, uh, oh, there's another one just coming as well. I'm falling behind, so. We'll, Sorry, we'll, I, keep, I, talk, no, I talk too much, don't <laughs> I? Sorry, everyone. No, that's absolutely, that's what we're here for, to talk. Um, so, Lloyd, a question about addiction. What are your thoughts on the language we use around addiction, i.e. alcohol, uh, alcoholic? Yeah, language is important and, you know, I'll always use the disclaimer, I can slip up sometimes and probably say words that might not be right or, or, or fit with something. I think, I think the word alcoholic probably isn't great, is it? Because it does sort of conjure up this image in people's minds and actually you know, behind somebody who's got a dependence to alcohol is a person. And we've just said that, haven't we? Mm -hmm. And I think it is always remember that. And, and you hear lots of phrases, don't you? You know, alcoholics one. Sometimes you hear talk of people being clean mm -hmm. in the drug services or they're clean now, mm -hmm. implying that were well, they dirty before, mm -hmm. they were still a person, you know, they, they yes, they had an addiction, they had a medical problem, but they weren't mm -hmm. dirty. Um, so you, yeah, I think language is important and whilst I think whoever you are, we can all slip up with our language on any issue, it's important to be mindful and think about what it can mean. I sometimes even think about when I'm writing my medical notes, I don't like the term smoker, mm. you know, I'd be like, oh, they don't smoke or they, you know, and I don't know why, because I think all of a sudden you've just reduced that person to one thing. We say that mm. quite often, don't we? Like within your own personality, you're more than one thing. Yeah. You know, people see someone who's disabled and think, well, he's disabled. Well, no, he's, he's a, it's a person, yeah. you know, that, um, look, look further than what you see, basically. Absolutely. And, you know, we're all different. Some people, some people language doesn't matter. You know, there are people who are like, oh, I ain't bothered what I'm called. I ain't bothered what people say. And that's fine. That's good. You know, and there are some people who are like, really don't, you know, like it at all. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's important to just think about language with addiction. And I think it's being mindful of that person, mm -hmm. as you said. And I think language nowadays, because you see so much in the media now, and mm -hmm. some people are picking language apart, whatever. And I think... Like with everything, it's gonna if it offends the but I would hate to offend someone mm -hmm. on accident, you know. If I want to offend you, I'll offend you, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but you know, we do that instead. You know, I'm ever and if I say this, I, I beg my pardon if I do. And I think sometimes, like we said, look, with 
committing suicide. You can't say committing suicide anymore is completing suicide or it is suicide. Or mm -hmm. and you're thinking, I didn't say it to offend you. Mm -hmm. I'm asking a question about it. Or on... I think there's instances where you're shutting down a conversation, which I think that's definitely with that one. So you, you, whether you say committing or completing, just remember you're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. if, if you correct someone within a conversation just because of something like that, are you shutting down a conversation that, could that could have life. carried on and saved a life? Yeah. And that's where, you know, I think you, and words are important, but don't let it take out the context of what's going on and yeah don't like don't let this little slip up of a, a miscommunication get in the way of actually getting help well yeah. yeah absolutely and i think you know i think if you're the person who slips up apologize and move on mm. we're all human we all oh, make yeah. mistakes and we're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time and it's fine and like you say you know it's reasonable if somebody's saying something to you and you you know you're feeling that it's inappropriate to just say Look, I'd rather you didn't use that term. I think yeah. that's very reasonable. And and suggest another one if you feel confident. Can you use this term? And I think most reasonable people will be like, yeah, sorry, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then you probably slip up again and have to go through it again because yeah, that's yeah. the way we are. But it is. It's it's and yeah. To me, it's just don't shut down a conversation because someone's used a word that you're not happy with. Mm. Uh, like you say, just say actually that's I don't like that term. I prefer this one. Let's you know move it along again. As long as we're talking and i think if we've gone somewhere to help or to ask for help let's remember why we're there mm. if we're asking for help or if i'm trying to help so just think if it makes you feel better to talk like this let's do it that way yeah let's play with each other instead of against each other mm. yeah certainly but i think i'm glad somebody's raised that because it is an important point and i spend a lot of time sometimes thinking about you know language and, and and the words that we say and the connotations that are attached to certain words and how you know it can have a really big impact on people people who are already struggling and, and be made to feel worse and like you say just reduced to what their addiction is mm. you know and and for some people in the throes of it they may just feel that that's all they are mm. at that time you know they can't see past their life and who they are they might be a mother or a sister or you know whatever they are those things have gone and to have other people just then you know using that term just just reinforces that all i am is is this all i am is that you become your shame yeah don't you? and that's a, that that makes recovery even harder doesn't it because then you've got that to deal with on top of everything else you've got to deal with and that's why a lot of people go back into the habit mm -hmm. because getting clean believe it or not, it's one of the easier parts of it it's staying clean isn't it because once you do get clean then you've got to face up to and then all the things you've been holding away from the depression the shame the guilt the loathing the yeah. that hits you and then you've either got to make excuses or make changes at that point and then that's when it's easier to fall back onto it isn't it back yeah. onto your sword yeah completely um and i think it's it's a long battle for some people and what we've got to remember is the reasons why a lot of people may have become addicted to something. If we manage to, you know, break the physical aspect of the addiction, like, you know, an alcohol detox or mm. put somebody on methadone and they don't use heroin anymore. The reasons that got them there are still there. We've got to deal with that. So that's there. And then somebody's life might be difficult. They might not have worked for several years. No career. That's gone. They've got no money. Their housing situation is bad. Mm. You know, those things take time to fix and it can be really difficult. So yeah, re the chance of relapse is so high because, you know, for some people it's like, oh God, I can't, I can't deal with this, but there's something I know that's going to make me feel better and it's going to do mm -hmm. it pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and you've had all that time where you, you haven't necessarily had to deal with the normal stresses of life. Yeah. You've blocked it all out. Mm -hmm. you? And terrible things could have happened in, in the time while you were, while you were out of normal life, mm -hmm. you know, people could have died. You could have lost touch with people who are important to you. And I think, you know, coming back to Atlantic house, that that's a real big part of change. Grow lives ethos. It isn't just about, you know, that aspect of it. A lot of time is spent doing work around that to get people ready. You know, if somebody's going to go in for an inpatient detox, they don't just turn up at Atlantic house on the Monday and say, Oh, we'll book you in tomorrow then. Some people want that, yeah. but for exactly the reasons you say, because they can go in and they might successfully complete their two weeks, but there's a good chance that isn't going to then last in the future. We need to work with people 
to understand why they're there, get them to understand and support them to rebuild their life. So in terms of Atlantic Health, is it a one-on-one kind of uh, base or is it group sessions? How does it, how do you? So there's everything really. There's right. a real sort of menu of different things that, that go on. So, you know, essentially in most cases, it, de- it depends on obviously what your issue is. I mean, say, I don't know, alcohol is an issue. You know, you'll, you'll be assessed by somebody, triaged by somebody there, ask you lots of questions. It's often very relaxed. The questions do have to be asked. It's not always easy, but we need to build up a bit of a picture. We've got specialist nurses who deal with alcohol who are, who are brilliant. You know, they're really good. And they'll probably ask a lot of boring sort of questionnaires to assess alcohol use, um, ask about medical history and things. So there will be some one-to-one work in that sense. Um, and then we can look at, you know, what, what what the best approach is. Some people might not need, you know, the classic sort of detox, if you like. Some people with a bit of a plan and support can probably do it themselves at home, you know. But people forget when it is very extreme alcohol misuse. Mm-hmm. It isn't just get a grip and stop it. Yeah. If you are drinking two excess, mm-hmm. but a couple of bottles of spirit today or mm-hmm. whatever, you can't just go cold turkey because you will seizure. Yeah, it's, it can be really dangerous, and this is something we do see. So, unfortunately, when you drink regularly and at, and at high levels, you can develop something called a tolerance, dependence and tolerance. And when that happens, you're right, if you stop drinking, your body needs it to function, and you can go into what we call a withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal is particularly dangerous. Um, not only is it very unpleasant, people vomit, they feel horrendously ill, they can have seizures or fits, which sadly can lead to people dying um so it isn't safe to just stop drinking if you're one of those people you do need to speak with somebody to come up with a plan and for some people that doesn't mean you've got to go into hospital or do this we can sometimes work out what you're having on a daily basis Mm. and then safely reduce it Mm. um for some people that might need a bit of extra support we might need to give medications to support that to help with withdrawal what kind of medications so we we use medications that are from a class called benzodiazepines um chlordiazepoxide is one that we use diazepam sometimes used and and these things help to protect against not just the anxiety and withdrawal symptoms Mm. but they reduce the chance of a seizure happening they help keep people a little bit more comfortable a bit more as you said the anxiety and the because you are changing person aren't you oh yeah i mean it, it must be so frightening you know you to, to, to come to atlantic house in the first place mm. and, and not only discuss these personal matters something that you might have been wrestling with for a long time and not knowing what's going to happen you know people might think god i'm going to be carted away and sent into a hospital bed for four weeks but we know that for a lot of cases that 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 isn't how we do it um so we very much will work with people for what's safe obviously what's medically safe but for what you want what you think would be best for you um and whilst yeah we can't accommodate everything um there's a lot of work goes into getting it right for each person individually Um, and it is i mean and um, obviously the other one like with heroin like um the um what's it called um coming off it methadone methadone could you explain what methadone is like what's the and why it works so well yeah so um obviously heroin is what we call an opioid mm. um and there are lots of different medications that are opioids so codeine is a common one you mm. can buy low strength codeine over the counter and when you take that your body metabolizes it into morphine um, and i think probably most people have heard of that heroin um is quite interesting actually heroin was first synthesized by the bayer company in the early 1920s and at the time when they made it they didn't think it would be addictive so we knew that morphine was addictive mm-hmm. and even though it was a really great painkiller um there was a problem with people being addicted so heroin was marketed as this safe alternative and interestingly chemists were reporting to people that lots of moms were coming in buying heroin for their baby's cough great cough medicine by the way it works um <laughs> but that's when they realized that it might might be addictive so heroin's sort of like a supercharged version of morphine um it's converted to morphine in the blood but it can cross into the brain so it, it does it does have a, a stronger effect diamorphine's its medical term and we do sometimes use it for some medical procedures still so when you're addicted to it the um, heroin converts to morphine and it attaches to receptors in your brain and other parts of your body as well and exerts its effect. 
methadone was developed as a substitution. So methadone attaches to those same receptors, so it stops the withdrawal symptoms if you need heroin. But what methadone does is it doesn't give people the euphoria that comes from taking heroin. So traditionally, before methadone was, was synthesised, people who were addicted to heroin were prescribed heroin. Mm. That would be the method. Just going lo lower in doses. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Yeah. And it was actually called the British system and it was very commonly done right up until the 1960s, actually. And there are still some cases where we would prescribe heroin for some people who we call a treatment resistant because methadone doesn't work. Mm. Um, and, the, you know, methadone is part of what we call opioid substitution therapies so we also use another drug called buprenorphine or espinor is its trade name um and we substitute the heroin with something that we prescribe to help stabilize somebody you, you haven't got to buy the drug it's free um you know it's safer you, you know exactly what dose you're getting yeah. you buy heroin on the street who knows what it could be sure. if you're injecting it's now something that you, you're going to swig and take so again that's safer so you Eliminating all of those harms and, and substituting and preventing the withdrawal, keeping somebody comfortable. And I see it, isn't it? And I, I mean, every time I've said this, I think um, drugs obviously can be a problem for some people, but I think if we had better ways of getting safer drugs into people with better rehabs within the country and making things safer for the users and getting rid of the gangsters, and I think we'd have a, a better we're never going to get erode the problem altogether but no. i think we'd have a better grip of actually what is going on yeah and i think that that's it we talk about this multidisciplinary approach and and that's why organizations like change very liberalist what, what atlantic house is about you know we're not just about simply saying right you come in you're on heroin here's some methadone go away mm. you know at, at some point in the past drug treatment was a bit like that you know, well, we'll get them on methadone, that's it. But actually, you know, we call it structured drug treatment. And we try and work to understand the reasons why people use drugs, the issues they've got. And, you know, we've got lots of different services. We have citizens advice in there, housing in there, social services can come and help. You know, we've got access to counselling, groups, therapies. You know, there, there are umpteen different things. There's a volunteer programme that people that's can fantastic, get, get involved it? that's, in and it's all about looking at you know that person as a whole that real holistic approach and seeing beyond you know as one of the the listeners said you know an alcoholic or whatever that's a person's life that we've got to try and rebuild and yes we can't rebuild it for them but we can support them in those different aspects because if we get that right then we can wean that methadone off and there isn't any need for it. You're giving them the best chance, aren't you, with yeah. all that support behind? Yeah, and it still is really, really hard work. You know, mm. I, I often say to people, you know, people have had a difficult life or a difficult time, look, it's not your fault that that happened to you. Mm. It isn't. It's it's sad and it's, it's, it's terrible. But unfortunately, it's your responsibility to fix it. No mm. one's going to come along and do it. Mm. However, there is good support. And if you work with us, in a lot of cases, we can get things right. And... Everybody's recovery is different. Mm. You know, for some people, recovery will be being completely drug free, living a normal life and leaving it all behind them. And that's fine. And some people think that's the ideal. But for some people, they might stay on methadone for the rest of their life, but they go to work and they raise their children and they function. And to them, that could be their recovery. And I think because you fell off the wagon doesn't mean you've got to stay off the wagon. You know, it, you, you can relapse, you can have your wobbles, you can make mistakes, you know, you're a human being. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, I haven't, had, I haven't had a cigarette in 21 days and I had one. I went, yeah, but you went 21 days without having a cigarette. Yeah. Are you going to have one tomorrow? And that's cigarettes. Focus on the positive booze, instead yeah. of the, the you, negative. You've had a wobble. Mm. Are you going to carry the wobble on tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. being kind to yourself isn't it? it and that is really really important and i say that as well you know i mean you know some some patients come to see me and they're really disappointed because something's happened there's been a slip up and like i said before you know when i see 30 patients and one patient's not very nice to be you know you hang on to that don't you and it's the same sort of principle you you know you've forgotten those 21 days mm. it's like oh i did it i had a fag forget it now mm. and smoking is a great example because a few years ago there was a really good campaign called don't give up on giving up and it was all around this wasn't it it's mm. like there are people who try and fail and try and fail but it really is a marathon and i know these things sound a bit cliche but it is mm. and the race is only with yourself it is 
Um, so it is. I think it. I think it is really important to remember if, if things have gone awry, it's fine. It's not a disaster. You know, we look at why they went awry and then hopefully try and avoid the circumstances that led to that. And something else. I mean, um, I've I've found over the last I'd say twenty years, the boom of cocaine has mm. just gone massive, and I see like people younger and younger doing it, and how course it's becoming how once again it's become so what it's not supposed to be and how addictive and i'm seeing it younger and younger ages because it used to be young kids getting a bit of resin or solids and then it was a bit of weed that turned to skunk yeah. then all of a sudden it's become the the cocaine boom yeah yeah and it, it, it's everywhere every tour you go to every it, it seems to have really hit like a tsunami yeah and it's interesting isn't it because i mean I suppose we're moving back to that political arena now, really. But, you know, we've got this so-called war on drugs, drugs are illegal, all these other things. But that isn't working, is it? Because no. drugs are readily available. I could leave here and walk out there, and if I wanted to, it probably wouldn't take me long to get Class A drugs. No. You know, I don't have anybody's phone number, but by talking to people or nipping in a pub, I will be able yeah. to make the links. Um, so it's accessible. You could make it would be easier to make bad links than it would be to make positive links. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's something that's accessible to people, and you know, people who sell drugs aren't going to have that many scruples. They're not going to mm -hmm. care that somebody's under eighteen. Mm -hmm. um, teenagers, as we said at the beginning, they want to explore. They want to rebel. You know, there's always pressure to do things, and there's always that cool kid, isn't there? It's like they tried cocaine or they've got cocaine, and half the kids don't want to do it, but they're still going to do it anyway or desperate vulnerable people yeah. who will give their left leg to feel better and then that's it in the mix you've got that 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 phone in there too so and it's interesting because these things can become normalized in society can't they you know cannabis is a good example of this for younger generations people we cannabis use is very normal mm. to a lot of people they don't see it as being an illegal drug Whereas older generations might be a bit like smoking cannabis, or, mm. you know. But for my generation and younger generations, be like, what does it mean? So we do get these societal shifts of what's normal, and cocaine's an example of this. It's be become accessible, ubiquitous, and people are like, oh, I don't see the army having a bit of that on a night out. Mm. And it's difficult to talk about it really because obviously there's a legal aspect. You know, you, you're technically committing a crime by having that in your possession that's where the criminal element exists doesn't it if you're carrying it mm. um, and actually you know possession carries up to 14 years in jail potentially which is bonkers yeah it's you know quite hard and actual supply and there's no legal distinction between possession and supply that's up to the police officer to decide um supply could carry a, a life sentence you know um and you've just officially just completely ruined someone's life yeah who is mm not a hardened criminal mm -hmm. they're not you know what i mean it's yeah. and how that life could be completely changed even if it's doing six months mm -hmm. in jail that person his job's ruined his more and all yeah. these things and i think i mean kev obviously you know i'm i'm here in i represent nhs i represent cgl in this conversation so cool. you know we might be straying into things that would be my viewpoint so i appreciate you have to be careful but oh, i do course, i yeah. do think there is high time we need a national conversation yes. on how we legislate with regards to drugs mm. and the only thing i'll say on that here and again this is this is a personal opinion yeah of course um you know if if alcohol were invented today yeah. it would probably be a class a drug oh yeah you know, it would probably be like, why? what's this stuff people are drinking? What are they doing? This is going on. Home office involvement, couple of years down the line, class A substance. And, you know, there's this distinction that exists, isn't there, between other substances and alcohol. Mm. And that's a historical one. But, you know, if we go back to Victorian Britain, opium was legal. People took coca, you know, Coca-Cola, cocaine-cola. You know, it, it was in that drink. Um so I think that it is high time there was a conversation and an honest one that's based on evidence. As doctors, we're taught to practice evidence-based medicine. We're supposed to look at the scientific evidence of the day, utilise that to formulate guidelines and then apply that to our patients, obviously using our own clinical knowledge and everything else. Mm. And when it comes to drugs, that doesn't always happen, does it? 
and we, we've seen the devastation especially in the states when we did prohibition all it did was encourage the gangsters who yeah. were selling like moonshine they could send you blind mm -hmm. but people would want the drink and that's where the criminal element comes in and that's what we're seeing there kids getting shot and stabbed and people over there their bit of turf Mm -hmm. If we take the criminality away from it and get the actual drugs safe, we get the mm -hmm. rehab safe, we get the mm -hmm. counselling safe, we get surely it won't erode all of the problems. No. But it will take away some and hopefully give people safer alternatives. Mm -hmm. And I always say if I go into any supermarket, I'm getting some personal, I'm getting some hobnobs, mm -hmm. like, oh heroin's on offer, oh I'll get I'll get some smack. <laughs> you just because absinthe is on sale doesn't mean I'm gonna drink it. Yeah. I think it is important to remember that and you know obviously we need to tackle the causes of why people have addiction and a lot of those you know are inequalities in our society poverty is a big driver you know poverty leaves you open to all kinds of issues yeah. you know if we can create a fairer society eliminate poverty or you know get it down to as low as is humanly possible which i think we could definitely do a lot better than we do yes. then there are going to be less risks for people becoming addicted to alcohol or other drugs and on the same coin the other side of the coin looking at policy legislation the law and actually having a more pragmatic approach to it and you know the uk's got really good form for doing really good work in history in the 1980s you know we embraced harm reduction needle exchange yeah. you know it was something we went for in this country and because of the nhs we could roll it out really quickly and we have one of the lowest rates of hiv in the western world really amongst our injecting drug users and it's attributed because we accepted that people were using and we provided um needles that were clean and initiatives to reduce sharing yeah. and at the time there was a lot of opposition you know that's encouraging drug use if you give needles we're encouraging this and actually it averted a crisis precisely um it's sorry. going to happen how can we make it safer yeah. and and i think that is don't really... throw your needles in the bushes bring your needles yeah. back dispose them yeah. properly yeah and that comes back to being open and having open conversations doesn't it brushing things under the carpet or hiding them away causes more problems whether that's on a personal level with your own mental health or when we we think about drug use it happens it's in our society let's drag it into the open and give some pragmatic advice to make it as safe as possible and actually look at what what is going to make this problem better in the long term and i'm, I'm not saying i've got the answers or suggesting that you know we do x y or z but I do think there needs to be more of an objective evidence-based discussion around it than there has been so far. And have conversations and listen to the other person, not just yeah. drugs are good, drugs are bad. It's got to be, yeah. can we see there's both sides of each argument and yeah. how do we stop ignorance by and, asking questions? Yeah, and, and I think that's really important, isn't it? Because and I'm guilty of this. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not, you know, I've had debates over many political matters or this, that, and the other, and I've been guilty of being like, oh, for God's sake, that's it, you know, and all of a sudden you feel attacked, that person feels attacked. But you're right, actually, that that trying to see each other and, and accept there's a different viewpoint and actually seeing where you can reach a consensus and a compromise, because mm. we don't ever get there, do we? We just all share to each other and nothing changes. Um, you see it every at the moment. No, mm -hmm. it's you're a fool, and we've seen it through the lockdown, mm -hmm. sort of through Brexit, and yeah. now even on panel shows, people are just shouting. They're not mm -hmm. going. Well, you, you actually make a point. I already know what I know. The only way I can learn is by listening, mm -hmm. and by having people like yourself who can explain it, and then having someone who has been an addict, who is an addict, who's living with an addict, and we all sit around and talk, and just because it didn't work for you it might work for him so let's be op open to options yeah completely and and that's part of you know what what we do at atlantic house and the ethos we use you know everybody is different everyone's going to come different and they're going to need different sets of support some people really need that one-to-one -one work with their recovery coordinator mm. and that's somebody who will be assigned to you if you come to atlantic house um and and that can be a really good relationship for some people. Some people don't need that. They don't They don't want to be harassed. They can go about their business. They can pick up their prescriptions. They can do what they need to do and get on with it. Um, and one of the, you know, the real strengths of, of the service that we've got, there are a lot of people who work there who are in recovery themselves. They've been there. Mm. Not everybody. There's a nice mix. Yeah, but we've got plenty of people who lived experience. People who might not have it directly or might have it through a loved one. People who might not have it at all. They've mm. just got experience of working there. But we've we've got that and 
you know, we bring such a nice diverse mix to the table in terms of the staffing there. Um, everybody's approachable and, you know, we'll, we will work to try and tailor it as best we can. We might not always get it right, but, you know, we keep chipping away. It is really important as well, isn't it, that you do. We, on this podcast, so we started out really just men's mental health and it's kind of gone from there to mm -hmm. talk about all kinds of topics. But originally, we still do have, but we have people who help with other people's mental health in all different ways, whether it's hypnotherapy, um, NLP to CBD. You know, we do, we've got, we've had everyone, haven't we? And we've always said, you've got to find your medicine, what works for you within regards to your mental health. Because what works for Kev might not work for me, it might not work for you. But you've got to be willing to try those things. Yeah, it's back to all the same things. There's got to be a bit of compromise. You've, you've got to go in trying to be a little bit open. Yes, it's frightening. And we don't expect people to come in and, and suddenly do, you know, this, that and the other. You know, we'll, we'll take it at people's pace. For some people coming in and discussing it, they might not want to come back for a couple of weeks. It might be enough. And that's fine. You know, we're not going to be like, right, you've got to be here tomorrow morning, 9am to do X, Y and Z, or we're kicking you out. That's it. Mm. You know, um, it is flexible and we can take that approach. And like you say, Things might slip up. That's fine. You can come back. We'll have another go. Um, and there is that, as I say, the fact that we bring in lots of other services and we'll try and connect to other people's services as well to help. Can I just ask a question back? Am I allowed to take a drink of water? Of course you are. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I they haven't given me champagne, by the way. <laughs> it is just water. <laughs> well, I think, because I've really enjoyed it, and I'll, I'll definitely want you back on. We've already, there's oh. comments already asking you for to come back on, and we haven't finished this one yet, so <laughs> well, it's gone down a treat. We'd love to get you back on. Um, is there anything, uh, before I ask you for a quote or saying, but is there anything you'd like to say or... I mean, no, I mean, obviously, you know, the usual. Thank you very much. It's been a great opportunity to come and speak with you guys. And, and, I, and I really like this informal, you know, this informal approach. I think, you know, to, to anybody who's listening who, who may think that they've got issues relating to addiction, whether that's alcohol, drugs or something that's just on their mind, you know, you can give Atlantic House a call. Google Atlantic House, Change, Grow, Live. It'll come up. It's dead easy. There's a number. You can just turn up at the front door if you want. We've got a lovely receptionist called Asher who's there. She'll help you. Everybody's lovely and friendly. You can come in and there's never a commitment. You know, you don't have to worry. Just because you've come in doesn't mean we're going to suddenly strap you down and make you do X, Y, and Z. It's confidential. You can talk to us. You can take as much or as leave as little as you want. But, but you know, don't, don't be fearful of doing it. If that's something you can't do and you've got a good relationship with your GP, go and see your GP. You know, it is part of our work. You can talk to us or the nurse at your practice, whoever, whoever you trust, speak up about it and see a problem shared is a problem halved. It's a bit cliche and I said it before, but it's true. I was just going to say that because we, we go all around the world on this and it's, it's finding someone to open up to, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And it sometimes, and, admitting it is a big thing isn't it yeah i mean we all hear that don't we you know once you recognize a problem is a problem that you're halfway there and there, there is a bit of truth to that sometimes you know i suppose admitting that there's an issue is pretty key to fixing it but sometimes you can admit there's an issue and think well i don't want to fix it mm. whatever that might be whether it's that you're a messy person or you're overweight or you know you're using heroin and there's a problem but trust is important and We've all got people who we open up to better than others, haven't we? We've all been in circumstances where we've told somebody something and thought, I can't believe I opened up to you like that. Mm. Um, but if there's somebody you trust in your life and it's on your mind, speak with them. If there isn't, which we don't always have that luxury, come to Atlantic House, have a chat. There's no commitment there. And sometimes in your circle, people who are using the same things that you're using sometimes they don't want you to stop using because they're rather happy with the relationship they've got with you aren't they yeah of course i mean you, you know you, you might find that for some people it is scary you know you might have a really genuine friendship with somebody who's got similar issues and 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 yeah they might not be ready to to go into recovery or into treatment but you are and and yeah that might scare them so i'm going to be on my own so sometimes people might try and put you off that does happen um it, that can be difficult and sometimes you know like smoking or the drugs you can feel like you're only friend in the world mm. we're not about judging we're not about telling you to stop no one's going to wave the finger at you we're just there to tell you what options there are there 
and and see if actually some of those options are acceptable to you and do you want to explore them you know you're all you're always in control of the situation and we are you know i don't seem too scary hopefully we are quite a nice bunch mm. by and large yes i'm i ranted our rave but i swear <laughs> from time to time but you know we're all human but yeah please come down if, if there's any concerns we'd, we'll always be happy to see you so doc before we go have you got any quotes or saying that have helped you get through life or something used by your organization oh which which ones do i sometimes use you know our own like internal monologues that you sort of chat to yourself i like to say to myself rome wasn't built in a day mm. i do i do say that if i'm if i'm feeling a bit overwhelmed i've got 400 emails in my inbox everybody wants something and i'm like oh, i can't do that today just think well you know can't get it you can only do what you can do i can only do what i can do yeah. and 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 you know tomorrow's another day we'll give it another another crack that's fine well doc thank you ever so much for coming on no worries thank you for having me it's been a pleasure so guys until we see each other next time i want you all to take care of yourselves and each other Tara a bit listen listen and that's a wrap for another show but if there are any comments or messages that you'd like us to read out for our next podcast please be in touch there are also lots of different organisations at the bottom of this page and hopefully they can help you or someone you care about. Please share this to spread the word. Until we talk next time, ta-ra-ra-bit. Listen, listen.